Hello and welcome to The Marketing Mind, brought to you by Marketing Magazine's editorial team and powered by something else. Happy New Year! I'm Shona Ghosh, the technology editor at Marketing Magazine. And as you may have noticed, your usual host, Rachel Barnes, is not here because she's off on holiday and has left me here on the host seat. I'm joined by two lovely guests today, Rebecca Coleman, Features Editor at Marketing Magazine, and also Tracy Follows, who is founder of the Strategic Foresight Consultancy Any Day Now, also a resident futurist as a columnist at Marketing Magazine, and also about to become Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at the Future Laboratory. Congratulations, Tracy, and hello to you both. Hello. Um, what uh, just to open up? What is the most farcical trend that you've heard about going into 2016 or through 2015? Tracy, let's start with you. Well, um, I did sort of want to pick up on this sort of anti-trend trend that we've okay. got going on at the moment. Meta, yeah, Meta. Why not? Which um, I noticed actually months ago was sort of kicked off. I think Phil Barden. Um, wrote a tweet about, you know, what's all this nonsense about millennials and Generation Y and Generation X? I'm paraphrasing him. I think he said something like, uh, you know, our brains have not changed since, you know, our ancestors. I wasn't sure whether he was referring to cavemen or the Victorians. Okay. But uh, I think we have changed. Um, obviously, our brains haven't changed that much, although potentially they are about to with lots of the technological predictions and forecasts and uh, advances uh, on the horizon. But um, there is this this sort of kickback against the idea that millennials are this precious new generation that are behaving in a totally different way to the way that Generation X or Baby Boomers did. And, and I kind of agree with that a bit, you know, um, we're not we're not that different, but they do have different values. They do have different perspectives. They've grown up um, being influenced by a completely different environment to the to the environment that so I was brought up with in the seventies and eighties. So um, take the point, but I thought it was an as with all these things, a massive over exaggeration. I think that that is also part of it. People are being so extreme in order to be noticed in their trends that actually there are a lot of sort of hyperbolic predictions. I did see something which is an earthquake-proof bed. Um, Tom Goodwin, actually, I have to blame him, he was tweeting it. It's, it's, and there's a, a brilliant image of it where the bread slides apart, you drop down into it like a trapdoor and then it closes on top of you. So it's like a bomb shelter in bed <laughs> That's form, the basically. one. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know... We're all going to be rushing out and buying those. Okay, wow. so super secure beds and, and the, the backlash against kind of the millennial segmentation would be your trends. Okay, Rebecca. Well, mine isn't so much a trend as a trend within trends agencies, um, which is the trend for silly portmanteaus. Also meta. Yeah. Can you give me some examples of some silly portmanteaus? Yes. So uh, Momtrepreneurs is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, what else have we got? Altruvation. What does what that mean? That? <laughs> Altruism and innovation. Oh, okay. Physmotional. Physical and emotional well-being. Yeah. Could they not just say that? Apparently not. <laughs> sort of creating less meaning with the portmanteaus, which is always problematic. Yes, and I have been totally guilty of it myself okay. in the past. So I'm not, you know, demonising the people that do it, but just maybe, maybe it's time to stop. Mine would be, so emojis, and again, I am very mm. guilty about writing about the emoji trend over the last year because it's very exciting and it's much more fun writing about aubergines than it is about sort of campaigns. Yeah. Um, but obviously sort of uh, Facebook has really capitalised on the use of, of emoji and they've started sort of really turning it into a, a point of branding. Um, and Nicola Mendelssohn, who heads up Facebook's European business, um, described emoji as modern hieroglyphics 
And she really sort of expanded this into a sort of longer lecture about how this is the visual language in which we communicate. I was just like, really, really? That's a trend now? Is, is, doesn't it signal the end of humanity? So it's probably my ridiculous trend for, for 2016 or kind of more accurately, kind of the end of 2015 and also the end of days. Um, one thing I did do was uh, kind of ha- take a look at some of marketing's most read stories uh, of, the, of 2015 just to kind of get an idea of what our audience is reading, what marketers are reading, and what kind of trends we might be able to pluck out of that. And I found it quite interesting that Protein World, um, which you may remember as the saga of the the tube poster that appeared kind of in summer last year and showed a very sort of slender young woman appearing in her bright yellow bikini and, and saying, are you, against the slogan, are you beach body ready? Obviously caused a lot of controversy and, and everything we wrote about it uh, got a lot of hits and, and we had quite a controversial opinion piece that suggested that Protein World had really sort of stayed true um, to itself as a brand with that kind of advertising, whereas I think it just sort of did it by accident, but whatever. Um, But the fact that that appeared a couple of times in our most read stories was quite interesting because it's come at a time where we've also had very honest campaigns about the female body like This Girl Can from Sport England and also Always Like a Girl. So I think there's, there's something going on there with sort of the body and public spaces and commentary on perfection. Um, and Rebecca, for marketing's December-January issue, you wrote about post-perfection as one of the possible trends going into 2016. So, I mean, what would you... I mean, could you comment on sort of Protein World and, and sort of visuals and the idea of perfection a bit as a, as a possible trend? Well, Protein World's an interesting one because no-one's quite sure whether it's a moment or a mishap. Mm. So we put it in our marketing moments of 2015 um, because it actually took what was not a very well-known brand and sort of amplified its message. Um, And it did stay true to its brand by sort of saying, you know, don't take out your insecurities on us to uh, people who tweeted that they weren't happy about it. Why do you think at that particular time it caused such controversy? I mean, we've seen scantily clad women in ads, particularly print ads, you know, those kind of quite cheaply produced tube ads as well, since, you know, almost not quite time immemorial, but definitely over the last kind of five years, a decade, these are not uncommon images. So why was it suddenly such a point of controversy, do you think? I think it's going against the grain of where most brands are going. So if you look at the likes of Dove with their Real Beauty campaign sure. and This Girl Can, they're showing a lot more sort of a, of a raw image, a, a realistic image of the female body, you know, and saying all shapes and sizes are beautiful. You don't have to look like a supermodel or, you know, this protein world bikini-clad woman to be you know, beach body ready. I mean, what does beach body mean? It's... Of course, lots of women sort of took issue with the meaning of, of beach body ready yeah. and sort of really ran with it on social media, I think. Tracy, what do you think about that particular moment in time and, you know, what it, mm. if it means anything for advertising or whether it's just a moment of Twitter outrage? No, I think it, I do think it's more than that. It made me feel quite guilty, actually. Um, not because <laughs> I think I'm beach body ready because I'm <clears throat> quite clearly I'm not. sure you are, no, no, <clears throat> Never. Um, but actually because I didn't find it quite as offensive as lots of other people, women, did, actually. Um, maybe, again, child of the 70s, I'm, I'm used to that sort of sexist kind of advertising. I do think it does go against the grain. If you look at what Pirelli and Playboy are doing, they're sort of... dropping that um, sort of approach and the Pirelli calendar that just came out. It was much more authentic, or certainly that was the the aspiration for it. So Uh, just to to remind people, mm, Pirelli was the the calendar that features very well-known figures like, I think, Serena Williams. Yes, Amy. Yeah. Schumann, that's right, yes. Which 
backs up what you're saying about sort of, you know, imperfect, perfect. But I think it's in contrast to what people are experiencing in private and on private, sort of more private social media, I suppose. This Facebook image crafting, you know, here I am, look at me, I'm living the perfect life with the perfect boyfriend and I'm like, just given birth to the perfect children and all that sort of image crafting. People are getting used to doing that and receiving that in their own more personal spaces on their own social media. But the minute something like that shows up from somebody you don't know, a brand that you don't know, and you sort of, I don't know, feels like it's judging you, people people um, get, get offended. Um, I, I'm sure they're right to be. I just... There's this uh, Martin Amos quote, isn't there, about um, being inoffensive and offended are now the twin peaks of our culture. And it does worry me that we are getting overly offended by absolutely everything around us, um, to the point that, for example, students are, you know, taking lecturers and well-known people off platform if they don't deem there to be safe places, i.e., you know, things that they don't want to hear. I, I do think it is slightly concerning when censorship seems to be the answer to communications. I don't think anything unless it's extreme violence, should be censored. I'd rather see it argued against and very transparent, rather than hidden, to be honest. But again, if you're, you know, if you're running a piece of uh, public transport or uh, public outdoor advertising and you, you put an image on there, then um, if the public don't want to be surrounded by that image, then they're going to let you know. That's quite interesting. I think it poses quite difficult questions there for brands in terms of mm. creativity and boundaries and... I think brands are having to sort of re-navigate those, mm. those boundaries of, of taste and authenticity. And it's interesting what you say, that people seem to be prepared to accept inauthentic images of perfection in their own lives, on their own social feeds. Indeed, that's almost encouraged on you know, a platform like Facebook and Instagram. And the most followed celebrities on Instagram, the sort of Jenna sisters, are, you know, are the most artificial. But it's not acceptable from brands, and they're having to completely re-navigate that whole aesthetic which is something I feel like you were writing about Rebecca so is is that something you feel is accurate that brands are having to to rethink um, how they negotiate those kind of spaces? I think people are looking to brands to kind of reflect their lives a bit more they want to see a bit more of themselves in these adverts um, which might have something to do with selfie culture or whatever, but you know they don't necessarily want to be judged by adverts. They don't want adverts to tell them who they should be. That they want brands to sort of help them be better, but in a non-judgmental way. Consumers are so savvy now that if they see this uh, polished advert, you know it, it just they know that it's a veneer. Um, and they'd rather see a bit more realism. Smart Car did an ad with swearing children recently, which I thought was quite a good example of this post-perfection um, trend. Kids uh, picking up swear words from their parents who were driving and got road rage, basically. And the tagline was, drive the wrong car, teach the wrong words. Nice. Which I thought was, yeah, it was kind of injecting humour, but also showing something very real and realistic and saying, you know, we're not perfect, mm. we will be. We, we all fail and we all fall down and, and that's OK. But it's a very relatable point, isn't it? It is, yeah. Mm. That's, that's very interesting. So perhaps, I mean, I get the impression that you might be saying that brands may adopt a more sort of authentic... And I don't mean authentic in the sense of here is this beautiful handcrafted item that was made by a spinner in India. More of a kind of a real aesthetic where on social media, which is 
sort of meant to reflect your real life becomes more inauthentic. So almost there's, there's sort of a mm. weird reversal going, that's very strange, that's very strange, that's very yeah. surreal. Yeah. 2016 is going to be really surreal and trippy. I don't know that I like that. It's very uncomfortable Wait till it gets virtual. Yeah. yeah, oh God, and then it's all just on all sides and you're <laughs> locked in a box on your own. I think that's quite connected to our next point, which is um, moving on to one of your other beautifully named trends that's not definitely a, definitely not a fast school trend at all, um, is post-interface, which is... I think quite a, a high concept name for something that is genuinely happening. So people are very attached to their mobile devices. I don't think that's that's news to anyone. I think there's some great Ofcom stats that came out um, earlier this year that showed that British adult use of the internet has doubled in the last decade, which is which is insane. I'm sure that's down to sort of broadband speeds and access as well. But there's there's definitely a sort of internet and phone addiction. The phone's overtaken the laptop as the sort of primary device to access the internet now, at least in the UK. If I look around the office, you know, people are really attached to their, to their devices. In fact, I was at the pub yesterday and my colleague took a very funny picture of, of two of my other colleagues just sort of sitting opposite each other and staring at their phones. You really want to be closer to the machine. So if we sort of take this forward um, at a point where you know, data and connectivity sort of surrounds us. Um, what does that mean for brands? What does that mean for the way sort of consumers um, handle their data and give away their data? What, what could that mean in 2016? Rebecca, I'm going to throw that quite difficult question at you. Google's Eric Schmidt had a great quote about this, which was, um, you know, in, in the very near future, you're going to walk into a room and be able to interact with the objects in it. And you're going to be interacting with the internet without even sensing that it's there or knowing that it's there. So kind of the idea of devices uh, that you, you know, have to be looking into and typing into is kind of going to leave, perhaps. I think there's a stat that connected devices are predicted to increase by 600% in the next five years. Which seems like something a crazy like, stat. Yeah, something like 30 billion. So the Internet of Things is, is on our doorstep, which means that the idea of an interface, the interfaces are going to be everywhere. Almost. Different appearances. It's yeah. not just going to be looking at a screen on a phone. It's going to take quite a different format. Tracy, I'd be really interested in what you think about the Internet of Things because it's mm -hmm. a quite a strange point where if we think about beacons, which is a small example of, you know, an Internet of Things device, they're not very good beacons and they don't really work. Mm. So it's it's sort of almost, well, it's not even almost there. It's sort of the idea of it is almost there. Mm. We have a really nice concept um, of what the Internet of Things could look like of this idea of connectivity that surrounds us that can do all these amazing things for us but actually making it work we seem to really struggle with that. I agree with you on the internet of things you, I mean you're right the, the, the Gartner forecast predicts 30 billion connected devices by 2020 and there's only 5 billion connected people um, and, and Facebook is very interesting on this because they took a stake in or bought um, an app development platform which some are rumoured to, to, to say that that's going to become a platform for the Internet of Things. I mean, they've connected, you know, 1.5 billion people. Why not connect all of these 30 billion things as well as the 1.5 billion people that are already connected to Facebook? I think that's quite interesting. The other thing about the Internet of Things, and maybe to get all these things to work, to your point, um, a lot better than beacons do is when they, it all goes up into the cloud and it almost becomes the internet of unthings because things will Ooh, become... That's a, that's a good, that's a good possible it? trend. <laughs> I like not, it. It's not a portmanteau. I've had to check exactly, myself. Exactly. <laughs> so Doc Sells writes brilliantly on this, I think, where um, he talks about 
everybody having their own personal cloud and the data from the things that you are connected to and are connected to each other for you, the things you have data relationships with, if you like, go into your cloud rather than their clouds. And that is a very interesting shift because then suddenly you as the individual have much more control over your data. What might that look... I mean, is that I my own know. personal server? I mean, it's, like, <laughs> I, I don't, it's a good question. I don't know what it would look like. He talks about it as vendor relationship marketing. So Goodness. rather than the brands owning the data and describing the terms and conditions and the relationship you will have with their brand through the data, you own the data and you describe to the brand how you want to um, proceed. And so, for example... It's interoperability points. You might be able to change your password, which then changes all of your passwords for everything that you are connected to. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Mm. <laughs> I know I would because I can't remember all my passwords. No one so I have can. to write them down and then I can't remember where I've put that list. Um, so there are things like that. I do think it's going to be a long time, though. And in fact, again, if you look at Gartner, the forecasts, the, the hype cycle... They're predicting, forecasting that it's the industrial Internet of Things that will come way before sort of the, the individual personal Internet of Things. A bit like 3D printing, I suppose. We all thought we'd have 3D printers in our bedrooms or living rooms. And actually, no, it's, it's the industrial 3D printing that's really taken off because of the infrastructure and because of the, the resource and the investment that you need. So I think we'll probably find a similar sort of pattern with the Internet of Things. Might be a decade down the line, though, before we're surrounded by all these amazing devices that can just sort of funnel out data and we can control that. I mean, that sounds like it's going to require a lot more data literacy from consumers as well. Because if I, you know, you see all these, um, the government kind of cyber security sort of adverts and it's sort of like, remember to, to choose an unusual mm. password. I mean, sort of particularly in the UK, tech knowledge and tech security knowledge is quite low so it's like there's quite a lot of risks that are posed here so is it going to be up to brands to sort of help educate consumers or is it going to be up to the vendors or it seems to me those relationships might have to be renegotiated Mm. I think everyone's kind of vying for control of the internet of things at the moment that's something quite interesting like who is going to have control of all this data um, and all of this information that's being collected is it going to be, you know, the consumers, so people who are using these devices, or is it going to be some big tech giant like Google or Apple, or is it going to be the government and, you know, smart cities, and who who's going to own all of that and control all of that, which raises a lot of questions about privacy. Which brands do we see kind of pushing forward with the Internet of Things? Only because we've spoken about Apple and Google, but obviously expands into a much wider landscape there are fitness bands for example and sports companies getting more involved so tracy where would you see some what i absolutely love which i've just discovered which is the ikea catalogue of the near future have you seen it no explain to me what it is okay it's basically a catalogue which feels like a traditional catalogue but it's of the near future so it's all the internet of things connected kind of devices that you should be able to buy from ikea or anywhere else um in the future there's a wi-fi connected table one of those yes that does ring a bell yes and they've also they're also doing some work into the um the meatball of tomorrow amazing (laughs) a key ikea cell (laughs) yeah exactly i love the way that they've done it though in a way that's that feels very normal 
and this is part of your everyday furniture and fabric of life but what will it be like in the in the future you know comedy aside the meatball <laughs> story i mean they are thinking about what will syn- synthetic biology bring us what will synthetic foods mean will we will we be using them will they be part of our kitchen and our way of living and feeding our families in vitro meat all those sorts of things um, now whether they will or whether they're not how brilliant that a brand is using you know, some of its investment to put some of these ideas out and to get the debate going or at least, you know, let people become aware of some of this stuff. Because usually it's not the brands. Usually it's startups with very technologically sounding names that they're actually quite scary, that sound very sort of scientific. Are they going to grow our food? You know, or are well-known brands... Um, that we're used to sort of serving us up um, our convenience foods, going to take control of some of this stuff. Anyway, so, so food aside, I just think um, I think the the IKEA catalogue of the near future is an absolutely brilliant idea, and it's it's the only brand I've really seen doing something like that. Trying to normalise the mm, concept through marketing. To normalize it, yeah. yeah, that's quite interesting. I, I I'd agree with you. I don't see many brands taking a very non-technical approach to something that probably does feel quite scary to most consumers. Um, I mean, a brand I've written about recently, a, a hive, the British gas mm. kind of startup thing that they own, and they they do um, connected thermostats. That's mm. a big thing, a bit mm. like Google's Nest. And sort of, I, I interviewed their marketing director quite recently, Emma Instant. She was saying, "Our problem is we really have to educate the public about exactly. what this can do. Exactly. It's tricky for them because they're using virtual reality itself quite." a difficult hard you know not the most palatable new technology either to try and show consumers how it would feel to navigate a house where you can mm. turn on the heating with just your smartphone or even if you're about a mile away you can turn it on mm. so you know they, they face this huge mm. educational challenge and they're not using terminology like the internet of things they're saying when you're coming home just bring out your smartphone and mm-hmm. turn your heating on and mm-hmm. that, that's the terminology they have the benefits to rather than the features of the tech that's sitting behind it oh, i totally agree but how long have we been talking about the smart home 10 years at least but it hasn't really come to fruition because people haven't found the right language to describe it i think the brand that is going to win there is going to be the one that uh, makes the most successful ai personal assistant do you think so? Yeah. A kind of really That's, awesome Siri or... Yeah, because I think people will trade privacy for ultra mm. convenience mm-hmm. <laughs> any day. So um, something like Facebook's M, which is a sort of weird hybrid of human help and, and AI. So sort of Facebook M is a bit like Siri in that you mm-hmm. can ask it to do things, but there, there are humans on the other side who will also fulfil order requests like, can you book me a table at 1pm on the 15th of February 2017 at the Fat Duck? You know, and, and a machine can't really do that, but a human can't. So it's sort of more of a hybrid thing. Exactly. I think Amazon are winning at the moment with their Alexa. What's AI. Alexa? I don't, I, don't, I don't know Alexa. So the device Please. is called Amazon Echo. Ah, yes, But okay. the actual personal assistant kind of personality within the device is called Alexa. So Echo is the device that sucks up information about you, it listens. Yeah, so basically it'll sit in the corner of your room and you'll say, Alexa, how many teaspoons in a tablespoon? Alexa will tell you. Apparently it's listening all the time. Yeah, so no one knows strange, yeah. what, what's going on with all of that, that information that it's mm. getting from your conversations. Is at some point Alexa going to serve you up ads based on what you've been talking about? You know, like if you're talking about buying a new TV, then it's going to be like... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's a very interesting thing about around ultrasonic spying because there's a lot of work going on with audio now and spotting audio within or behind sort of inside video and visuals that we can see because obviously audio creates vibrations and all those sorts of things. But they can sit inside the 
the ads, and you don't even need to be in the room, that ad can use ultrasonic technology to pick up the other devices in your room and through the data that is being given out by those devices, build a profile of you. That is mental. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't Scary. even need you. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean for permission? That's a bit which well, again. Yeah, well, what, oh, yeah. well, exactly the point. It's, it's yeah. quite, I mean, mm. so this is where I think the problem lies is that um, w- one of the the big issues of increasingly our sort of data-driven world, and particularly with marketers, is the idea of control and privacy. And a lot of what I hear from marketers when I ask them the data questions, they say, oh, consumers are willing um, to kind of give up their data in return for something valuable. I was like, I actually increasingly think that's just a line. I think that's a spiel. Yeah. Mm. I think what consumers like is control. An example I'll give you is, um, so I, I went to a jewellery store when I was in San Francisco quite recently and I, I bought a piece of jewellery and they said, we're going to email you the receipt. What they did not tell me was that they would also sign me up to their email newsletter. Now, that's quite a basic example mm, of, mm. of possible misuse of data. But I was quite unhappy about that. It's a high-end jewellery store who are much cheaper in San Francisco, not because I'm rolling in it. But I was quite annoyed because I think that's quite an, a good example of a, of a brand sort of saying we're giving you something of value, which is your receipt virtually, and you don't have to carry the thing around to you. Oh, and by the way, we're going to add on this extra marketing function. I was like, that, that's, the, that's what I don't want from brands is that sort of deception. So is there going to be a control problem where brands say that they're giving consumers something of value in exchange for data, but actually they're sort of just pushing more, more sales messages onto consumers and consumers don't really want that. They just want to be able to control how their data is being used. I mean, your example there is, Great, in that at least it's visible. You spotted it. You know it. Ha- it's happened. Most of the cybercrime that's going on and the and stuff that is going on with people's data, we just don't even know about half of it. It's um, it's invisible. I, I really do think it's it's going to be the biggest thing for the next ten to twenty years. Cybercrime, you know, cyber sabotage. It's true that data is the new oil in that it is valuable, but also that you can hold people hostage with it, you know, by withdrawing it or doing things with it. For anybody who hasn't read it, I would definitely get a get a copy of Mark Goodman's book, Future Crimes. It's quite a chunky book, but it's the best summation of all of the scariest stuff that's going on with data and on the internet and the dark web. Um, uh, he was a futurist at the FBI. You'd be surprised, you know, the Russians have already got, like, a billion passwords mm-hmm. already. Um, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, it, I think it was brought to people's attention, really, through the sort of car hacking episode that got quite a lot of media attention, didn't it? So this it? was Jeep being, That's being right. hacked by yeah. a white hat hacker, so not for, yeah. for unethical purposes, but it, yeah. it went very big. Well, yeah, I mean, they say that. Target, obviously, you know, was um, all, all of its customer data was, um, was, was lost because the hackers hacked in through the air conditioning system, and we've seen what's happened to Talk Talk. I don't think companies can get away anymore with, with, with saying, well, I'm not really sure if it's encrypted or I'm not really sure how... Our customer data has been affected. They've got to know about it day by day, second by second, because it is very precious stuff and it's getting more and more precious as time moves on, I think. I think the next title in the boardroom is going to be Chief Hacking Officer. Do you think so? That's yeah. quite interesting. I know that um, Bloomberg, who sort of obviously have the terminals that give give out a lot of financial data, have in-house hackers whose job it is sort of for you know, eight hours a day is to sit there trying to hack the terminals. I'm I'm almost surprised more brands don't have that. Lots of brands do. So, I mean, I saw an advert, I was researching a feature on privacy um, and I saw an advert for PepsiCo 
who are looking for a certified ethical hacker. That's mm. really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and whether a uh, hacker feels it's a white hat hacker feels yeah. it's more lucrative to go down the brand the brand employee route. Exactly. It's a slight question mark. Bring there, them but. over. And the hackers you were talking about uh, who hacked into the Jeep have been hired by Uber. Ah, what an interesting twist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. An interesting twist. And uh, Nike were at the Black Hack convention so last some year. brand learnings from everything that's well that's yeah. a positive it is a positive i i would like to see some brands starting to promise uh, a more sort of uh, I don't know, trustworthy propositions i mean there's there's nothing even in the sort of credit card market financial services i don't see many brands talking about you can trust us with your data no one dares to go out no. and say that of course but actually these are going to become one of the table stakes i think because if nobody's promising that, then you aren't going to be able to give your data to, to people who, who aren't going to be able to um, to look after it and keep it secure. So if I was going to take one overwhelming point across everything we've discussed, it would be brand honesty, which I think mm. isn't just a trend for 2016, but probably a trend for all time for brands. We can definitely advise them to be a bit more honest and transparent in their dealings with consumers. I think that's been really interesting, sort of discussion about how brands can be bit more authentic in their advertising um, and not just sort of reflecting the kind of overly polished, perfect social media kind of posts that we all put up, but also perhaps coming up with um, more honest ways to sort of deal with consumer data. So definitely going to be an ongoing issue for the boardrooms in 2016. I think that just about wraps us up. Um, Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to The Marketing Mind with me, Shona Ghosh, and also my guests, Rebecca Coleman, feature subject at Marketing Magazine, and Tracy Follows. Special thanks to our producer, Nan Davies, and to our host, Something Else. We will be back in February. You can join in the conversation on Twitter following our hashtag MarketingMind or tweeting at MarketingUK. You can also find out more on our website, marketingmagazine.co.uk forward slash podcast. You've been listening to The Marketing Mind.